Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Um, yeah, welcome, welcome. It's really like how exciting to have so many newcomers tonight. Um, it's really exciting. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm from New York. And, um, you know, I want to add my welcome to Deanne, to Recovery Gym, especially for the new people here that, um, you know, our... Um, our purpose, our real purpose, um, you know, in this particular meeting um, is to let people know that you can recover, right? That recovering is absolutely possible and it's actually um, guaranteed if you follow the directions um, that we actually have the experience um, with the miraculous and um, and that we really believe that there is a God that cares about us deeply. Um, and that if you're given correct information, you know, um, with clear direction in a loving and supportive environment, people can get well. And so that's what we hope to provide. So especially for people who are new, we really wanna encourage you, um, use the chat box. I like to think about it like the virtual coffee pot, you know, that, was at those face-to-face -face meetings where you would sort of gather together and talk. So, um, you know, I would encourage you to use that as well so that you can jump on in there. Um, and um, while I saw that there were so many new people, I was like, oh, I should probably show my pictures, but I didn't have them up and ready. So I'm, maybe at the end, I'll get a chance to um, find them and share them. Um, my own experience um, is that I've been a compulsive overeater I think all my life. Um, and at the, my top weight at the end of my rope, I was over 300 pounds. I was living in complete misery. I could not um, diet my way out of it anymore. I had been dieting my whole life. I was not only addicted to food and compulsive eating, but I was a compulsive schemer and dieter. So I was always trying something new. Um, and that was the, that was like the structure of my life. It was like either I was the victorious or I was the loser, um, but I was always fighting something. And I don't live that way anymore. <laughs> That's the good news that it's been uh, nine and a half years that I've been um, entirely abstinent and um, I'm living with peace and serenity, whereas food is concerned and where weight and diets are concerned as well. So that, that's the hope. Um, so tonight we're going to um, discuss step 10 and it says um, this thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit and our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. And this is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And when these crop up, we ask God to remove them at once. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. And then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help love and tolerance of others is our code. So that paragraph has a lot of information. First of all, it tells me that I am going to mess up. It's not 
if, it's when. You know, I'm gonna make mistakes. Like we're we're not brought to a position where we're saints, where we're perfect, where we're angels. You know, my experience is I do get selfish, right? Which is wanting things to go according to what's in my best interest, right? Or actually what I believe is in my best interest. Um, or what I believe is in the best interest of those people around me that I care about. I've got a plan. And I want it to happen for them. And that's my selfishness, you know. Um, I may even be dishonest, you know, which means that um, I'm not trusting God with the outcome, right? If I get dishonest, what that means is I've got a plan, God, move over, and I'm going to make it happen, right? And if, this, and if the truth has to be sacrificed in order to get my way, um, so be it. That's what it means to be dishonest. Um, I get resentful, right? Basically irritated when life does not follow my little plans. That's what, that's what a resentment means. I've got a little plan. I've got a little design. And when it's not happening, I get, I get bothered. By it. I get agitated. Um, and so here I'm told what to do. What do I do when I get those things? Well, bring it to God right? We always bring it to God first. Talk with another person, make amends if I've hurt someone, and then help someone. And the last sentence of that, you know, paragraph, it says, um, love and tolerance of others is my code. And I have to say, that's my favorite. It's probably my favorite line in the whole book. I keep saying that I'm going to get that tattooed. I will someday. I'm going to get love and tolerance. I love that. Um, because I got a code here. Like I've been given um, a standard operating procedure, which, um, you know, for me, it's my mission statement. It's, um, it's how I'm gonna live my life. Um, it's, it's my ideal that I'm gonna be loving and tolerant. And, you know, and if you notice my code is not fairness and justice. It's not right versus wrong right? It's, it's not my way versus the other way. It's, it's love and tolerance and it's my code. And, you know, when I think about love and tolerance, well, love is easy, right? The idea of love is easy, like love, right? And then the concept of tolerance is sometimes something that I think we struggle with because we think what that means or what I thought it meant was that I have to stomach other people. I got to like suck it up grit my teeth and somehow tolerate them. And actually what I really think my code is that I have to be less sensitive to other people and other situations not being what I want. And that's really what it means to be tolerant. I think about diminished sensitivity to a stimulant, you know, so some sort of stimulant. And, you know, like we build up a tolerance some of us to medication, or we build up a tolerance to, um, you know, a drug or to some sort of something. Well, I have to build up a tolerance to things not going my way. And that's my code that I'm going to work on not being so sensitive to every little thing I feel, because that's part of my selfishness. That's part of being self-centered. If everything that happens in the world 
somehow affects me greatly and I'm uncomfortable by it, then I'm, then I'm concerned mostly with me and I need help to not live that way. So page 84 says, and we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. And if tempted, we recall from it as if from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in the position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky, nor are we afraid. And that is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. So this is like such great news because what this tells me is that I'm not going to need willpower, at least not where the food is concerned. Willpower is like no longer part of my arsenal. I don't need it. Um, and, you know, imagine going from the complete inability to summon up enough willpower to stick to a diet, right? That was me. I was unable to resist the very foods that I knew were problematic. Remember, I've been addicted to diets. So I've known my whole life from the time I was nine years old, from the very first time I went on a diet, I learned the points, I learned the calorie counts, I've known all of it. I have Lack of information was never my dilemma, right? I'm well informed about what I should not be eating. Um, and yet I could not use my willpower to keep away from those things. Um, and so now um, I'm at a place where I can easily refuse food. Like just doesn't, doesn't mean anything to me. I can be on any occasion. I don't have to avoid it at all. You know, I don't have to be afraid. I can be alone in my house with a freezer full of treats and it, and I don't even have to worry about it. Or I can be at a big party and everybody's serving it. Um, and and I, this has happened to me, not by me. This actually happened to me and I can continue to live like this so long as I stay spiritually fit. And we also know that our spiritual fitness is from work and self-sacrifice. So basically I'm given immunity by working with others and I don't need willpower to stay away from food anymore. And so, you know, I have written here, give some examples, right? So, cause sometimes people can't believe like you really can resist. So, you know, here's an example. Um, I, you know, I'm a teacher and one of the things that I would do um, usually around the holiday times, like Christmas time, is I would make gingerbread houses with my kids, with my class. And there used to be a time when I would, kids would send in candy for this gingerbread house treat that they were going to do. And I would buy some of the things and 
they would supply some of the others. And I would go through the bags of the candy that they sent in and basically eat and decide which ones weren't really, that shouldn't really go in their house. That was too, it was too good to waste on them using it. You know, never mind that they bought it, right? But I could not not eat it. I could not not eat it, right? And to like fast forward, I've been doing this now again, you know, for for years. And um, people will walk in my room and say, "It's it. The smell is so intense. Like you can smell the candy and the sugar down the hall. I can barely smell it. Like the candy looks like litter." to me and the frosting is like blue. Like that's pretty much how the same response I have. Um, and it's not like I'm saying, oh gosh, how am I gonna do this? How am I gonna do this? How am I? It's just happened to me. Um, you know, I can, I can cut birthday cake for people and never even think about licking my fingers if anything gets on me, I wash my hands, just doesn't, I don't even think about it, um, you know, so I don't need to use willpower at all, but I do use willpower in other areas. On page 85, it says that it's easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our walls. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. So food is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. So food is a subtle foe, which means, you know, even when they say that, like how can a substance have, be a subtle enemy, like a quiet, sneaky enemy? It almost sounds like they're personifying. They're, they're like making it sound like a person. Well, if you have this thing, you know exactly that this disease and the food does, for those of us in the grip of the illness, it does take on very human-like sneaky characteristics. It doesn't sound crazy to think that food has a personality, that it's sneaky, that it wants to hurt us. That's been my experience, you know? Um, and, um, you know, that, Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. So I exercise willpower, it tells me here, in seeking God's will, right? In knowing what it is that God's will is for me and then living in agreement with it. Then I am often using my willpower. You know, um, when I'm overly focused on myself, on my comfort, on my little plans and designs, I can use willpower to start focusing on others, right? I can actually use willpower to say, okay, cut it out. Stop thinking about that. Stop fretting about that go focus on another person. I can use willpower for that. And when I wanna play God, I can use willpower to knock it off, 
right? I can use Bill Harbor to say, okay, yep, you might think you know best for husband, for your mom, for your sister, for, for all the players in your life. And now stop because you don't, right? And, and oftentimes that is a use of willpower and it's awkward, right? And it feels uncomfortable and it might not mean that I'm doing it, you know, um, without feeling the pull, right? I don't always have neutrality around my, my behaviors not where food is concerned, but where people are concerned. I might not have neutrality there, but I can use willpower. I can use willpower to pray when I'm disturbed. I can use willpower to meditate. I can use willpower to call a fellow when I'm upset. I can use willpower to stay away from gossip and negativity. I can use willpower in those areas. Now I'm going to look at the AA 12 and 12 in step 10. And it says on page 88, as we work the first nine steps, we prepare ourselves for the adventure of a new life. So steps one through nine, they're like school. You know, it's lots of theory. And now we're going to start practicing what we've learned. Now we get to actually practice it. It's like, okay, you learned this skill set, you got some training, now go live it. You know, and it says here, then comes the acid test. Can we stay sober? Keep an emotional balance and live to good purpose under all conditions. And I wrote next to it, wait, what? <laughs> I have to be emotionally balanced and live in good purpose under all conditions, not just stay abstinent. No, right? What's required is more than just abstinent. You know, and, and I, I have this phrase, you know, that I like to say is that life gets what I call lifey. Life starts getting lifey. And, and I'm told that in order to live these steps, I have to stay, of course, sober, abstinent for us, because I will not be able to practice any of these principles if I'm in the food. I just won't, because when food is my master, it's my only master. It does not want to share the limelight with anybody else, right? So I have to be abstinent, but I have to stay emotionally balanced and useful no matter what's going on. I have to be, you know, like I wrote here, I have to be chill. I have to be mellow. I have to be calm, you know, not overly reactive. And it makes me think about, you know, one of the meditations that I do. And for me, I really have a, I have a real meditation practice. I, I believe in it. I know that it works. I have experience to prove it. But one of my meditations tells me to detach and view my mind as if from a distance. Pay no attention to the thoughts. View it as though you're viewing it from afar. And oftentimes that is how I have to view myself, you know, to not take myself so seriously, right? To just take a step back 
and try to get a little perspective on it. Because when I'm in the midst of my overly emotional perspective, the only thing I see is me and what I see, my human view. And really what I do need is like 10 giant steps backwards. So I get a fuller picture, right? Um, it says a continuous look at our assets and liabilities and a real desire to learn and grow by this means or necessities for us. So, you know, to me, that sounds like living in six and seven, that I'm going to continually look at my assets and my liabilities, and I'm going to have a real desire to learn and grow. And that's really step six and seven, to be constantly looking, right, at, at the things that I'm willing to have removed, the things that I'm really wanting God to, to take and help me with. Um, and a desire, step seven means that I've got a desire to learn and grow. I've got a desire to have God step in. You know, and to me, that's true humility. Humility is defined, um, it's defined in step five on page 58. I love this definition because I always thought humility meant humiliation. I would get confused, but the AA 12 and 12 says that it's a clear recognition of what and who we really are, followed by a sincere attempt to be what we could be. And that's, you know, that's part of what my step 10 helps me to examine. Page 88 says, self-searching becomes a regular habit. Admit and accept what we find patiently and persistently. So I've got new habits in recovery. And my new habit means that I am going to be looking at myself often, self-searching, right? Accepting and admitting what I find and working at this with patience and persistence. And we do it for a lifetime if we want to stay well. If you want to stay well, this is something we're going to do over and over and over again. Um, you know, why? Why? Why do I have to do this over and over again? Well, the bottom of the page tells us because there's another kind of hangover, not just a food hangover, not an alcohol hangover, which we all experience whether we're drinking or not. And that is the emotional hangover. It's the direct results of yesterday's and sometimes today's excesses of negative emotion, anger fear, jealousy, and the like. If we would live serenely today and tomorrow, we certainly need to eliminate those hangovers. This doesn't mean we need to wander morbidly around in the past. So this is how we can detach from our circumstances so we don't get overly emotional. We can make peace with our lives. That's what we're told, that we can make peace with our own lives. And there's, you know, Step 10 in the AA 12 and 12 um, talks about different types of inventories. And sometimes there's a lot of confusion with people or debate or, you know, they, they are going to really um, say, well, this is a step 10 and this is a step 11. And this is, I don't think it really matters what you want to call it. Just do it. Just do it. You know, you can call it whatever you like. But the AA 12 and 12 
says that there's four types of inventories. And page 89 says that number one, there's a spot check, which is taken at any time of the day, whenever we find ourselves getting tangled up. That's like that in the moment, I'm having a problem. I'm going to take care of this right now. I'm going to like, you know, bring this into light right here and now. That's the spot check. Two, there's the one we take at day's end when we review the happenings of the hours just passed. And here we cast up a balance sheet, crediting ourselves with things well done and chalking up debits where due. And so I like that, you know, sometimes people say, no, 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 that's a step 11 when you do that nightly review. Well, the AA 12 and 12 says differently, but I don't, again, I don't think it really matters. It doesn't matter what you want to call it, just do it. And it also tells me that I'm going to be looking at positives, not just negatives, both. And I'm looking at both things. Number three, here's another type of inventory. Then there are those occasions when alone or in the care, in the company of a sponsor or spiritual advisor, we make a careful review of our progress since the last time. So sometimes people look to revi revisit aspects of the steps or they look to do it a different way. You know, they wanna, they wanna do another inventory. They wanna look more closely. Maybe a new problem arises in their lives since the last time and they wanna kind of dig a little deeper, we're told. Great, that's the third type. And then four, retreats for a day or so of undisturbed self-overhaul and meditation. And I think that's awesome. So we're told here, retreats, you know, to and, and we have those, whether in OA or in other spiritual practices um, where we separate, we go away, perhaps, of undisturbed self-overhaul and meditation. Um, and we're told that we're really going to have to, we have to have a spiritual life. We have to focus on spiritual growth, but this can't just be, you know, sometimes people say, I live in 10 and 11, I live in 10, 11 and 12, almost as though it's a catchphrase. And, um, and here it's telling me what that actually means. What does that 10 actually mean if you're going to live in it? So all of those are ways we practice the 10th step. And now it says, once this healthy practice has become grooved, it will be so interesting and profitable that the time it takes won't be missed. So here it says that it's going to be, it's going to be grooved. It's going to be part of our makeup and that it's, it's going to give us like, it's going to be interesting for us. We're going to get a chance to know ourselves and know our lives better and know God better. And then it's gonna give us wonderful profits that we're really gonna benefit from it. And we won't miss the time that it takes to do it. Um, and we're told it's gotta be done daily. Page 90 says our inventories become a regular part of everyday living rather than something unusual or set apart. So this isn't always, this is a practice. 
Okay, so now the spot check inventory. For us, that's in the middle of the day. You know, that's the middle of the day tent step. That's the one you tend to hear about a lot. Like, I need a tent. Anybody available for a tent kind of thing. You know, and it's and it says in the book here that it's a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with us. And, you know, that's like, I remembered thinking, wait a second, aren't I entitled to get disturbed over blank? Aren't I entitled to be mad about whatever it is? And um, no, <laughs> we're actually not, you know? Um, and it's like, what if someone really does something awful? Well, page 90 answers this. Aren't we entitled to be mad? Can't we be properly angry with self-righteous folk? For us of AA, these are dangerous exceptions. We have found that justified anger ought to be left to those better qualified to handle it. You know, and then a little further down the page, it says anger, that occasional luxury of more balanced people could keep us in an emotional jag indefinitely. These emotional dry benders often led straight to the bottom. So, you know, my step one understanding tells me that I'm distinct entity, that I can't eat like other people. I can't react like other people. I can't do things like other people. And I can't be angry like other people. I cannot live in justified anger. You know, in step four, we found out that anger, it's the dubious luxury of normal men that it will kill us and that I'm in the greatest danger of all when I'm right. When I feel like I am entitled to be angry, when I'm entitled to feel self-righteous, um, I'm in a lot of trouble. And what I would like to suggest is that we are actually entitled to much better than that. I mean, if you want to be entitled to be angry, go for it, enjoy it, right? But it will take you down. That's what we're promised. Um, so, you know, other people, normal people, you know, they, um, they're perhaps better qualified to handle it. I have people I work with who can get really worked up over work issues and they can you know, be angry at union meetings and demand and, and, you know, and stay very closely attached to that anger. And that will kill me. I have to detach from it, like I said earlier in that meditation, as though I'm a spectator, viewing it from afar, asking for the removal, asking God to help me so I'm not so angry. I have to ask myself, for each thing that I'm angry with, is it worth dying for? Is this, is this the battle that I want to die on? Is this the bridge, right? Is this the bridge I want to go down on? Um, and oftentimes, it's not, right? When I look at it more closely, um, because for me, to be angry is to eat, and to eat is to die, right?
Um, you know, my own experience was when I was over 300 pounds, I had dangerously high blood pressure and sleep apnea. And I was told that I probably wasn't going to make it out of my forties. Well, I have, I can go right back to that life again, if I choose, just get angry and feel entitled, right? Page 91 says the quick inventory is aimed at our daily ups and downs, especially those where people or new events throw us off balance and tempt us to make mistakes. So what do I need to get back in balance, right? One, self-restraint. Two, an honest analysis of what is involved. Three, a willingness to admit when the fault is ours. Four, an equal willingness to forgive others. And five, see your progress and don't get discouraged. This is what the AA 12, 12 tells us, that those things will help get me back in balance. And I found that to be true, especially when I'm feeling out of balance. If I can bring to mind how far I've come you know, and that's often the wonderful work that we get to do with sponsees when they call us really upset over an issue. We can lovingly ask them, are you still abstinent? And they say yes. And then we can celebrate the blessed miracle of their sobriety, even in these difficult times. And that's often, you know, that's where we get to kind of put the cheerleader you know, take out our pom-poms and try to cheer them on. That Wow, this way of life is really working for you, isn't it? You know, you mean you didn't eat? You lost a loved one and you're not eating? Or your boss did that and you didn't turn to the food? Um, those are the ways that we can help one another and it helps us get back in balance. So self-restraint says here, our first objective will be the development of self-restraint. This carries a top priority rating. Nothing pays off like restraint of ten, tongue and pen. We must avoid quick-tempered criticism and furious power-driven argument. The same goes for sulking or silent scorn. Like, ugh. so I can't just like lash out and act crazy and loud and vocal. I also can't walk around pouting with that sour face, with that like, you know, I just like ate a lemon expression, right? I can't do that either. Um, because these are emotional booby traps, it says, baited with pride and vengefulness. Our first job is to sidestep these traps. When we are tempted by the bait, we should train ourselves to step back and think. For we can neither think nor act to good purpose until the habit of self-restraint has become automatic, right? So that sounds to me like willpower. Am I using willpower to not like, you know, I mean, here's like a perfect example. I want the dishes done, you know, I go to bed at night and I, the sink was clean when I went to bed. I, I washed everything and I wake up in the morning and someone went to bed after me and they left a sink full of dishes. So I actually have to use self-restraint to not, <clears throat> you know, 
wash the dishes with a pout, with a sour face, with a stamp, or to, to yell, right? Um, I have to show self-restraint until it becomes automatic. Now, am I entitled to have family members pitch in and help? Maybe, but do I wanna die on that bridge? Is that the battle I wanna die over? Probably not, probably not. Um, you know, and so this sounds like I'm using willpower and it makes me think of how, you know, I tried to train myself to deal with the temptation of the food, but I found I could not do it. Well, this is different because I am actually able to employ willpower here. It's not easy to train myself to abstain from pouting and criticizing, not easy. And in some ways it was easier to let go of the food. You know, I was sharing with someone tonight that they um, were working on an issue with their kids. And, and I was thinking how many times I would get into it with them. And one of the things that I've worked on in my own spiritual practice is, you know, I say it once because my job as mom, you know, it doesn't mean that I don't do anything anymore. I do believe God assigned me the role of, of teacher, of mom, right? Of whatever that role is. And sometimes I do have to say no, right? but I don't have to get in the ring and fight. I can actually work on an expression of vacant expression as though I'm detaching from the situation from afar. And I just keep my poker face on as they're going on and on, trying to convince me, usually my kids, trying to convince me to get me to change my mind and giving me their, all their reasons why I should cave and why I should give in and I just, and inside my head, I might be like praying and asking God, help me, help me, help me, help me. Great. Then that situation just brought me closer to God, right? Couldn't be a bad thing if I'm praying. Um, you know, and so that's pretty similar to what it was like with the food, right? Like I had to, I had to suck it up sometimes, but that was hard that I couldn't do. I could not rely on my willpower for long. And I would say with these wonderful defects, these struggles that I've had, God does remove it. He does remove it so that over time, you know, the dishes in the sink, most mornings don't get me freaked out anymore. It doesn't, I am more chill. They don't, it doesn't seem to matter so much the same way, you know, um, there's another area that we have to be on guard, we're told, besides just pouting. Another area that we're told is big shotism. And I wrote next to it, oh boy, <laughs> page 92. As an assur insurance against big shotism, we can often check ourselves by remembering that we are today sober only, only by the grace of God. And that any success we may be having is far more his success than ours. So we make sure to give all credit to God. You know, we make God the hero of our story, the star of our stories. And that helps kind of keep us from that big shotism. Page 92 talks about the new attitude we begin to develop and cultivate through our continued inventories. It says, finally, we begin to see that all people, including ourselves, are to some extent 
emotionally ill as well as frequently wrong. And then we approach true tolerance and see what real love for our fellows actually means. It will become more and more evident as we go forward that it is pointless to become angry or get hurt by people who, like us, are suffering from the pains of growing up. I love that. It's like, it tells me to cut people some slack that we see our imperfections and we attain more empathy towards the imperfections in others too. And we're all, you know, it's like we're all just a bunch of children fumbling around in our grown-up costumes, you know, attempting to do this grown-up thing and, you know, and that our ultimate goal is to love all people. Have I achieved this goal yet? Nope. But I'm chasing it. That's the goal I'm after. That's the one I'm working on. You know, bottom of page 92 to top of page 93 says, we can't stand it if we hate deeply. The idea that we can be possessively loving of a few, can ignore the many, and can continue to fear or hate anybody has to be abandoned, if only a little at a time. And it goes on to say a little further down that with those we dislike, we can begin to practice justice and courtesy perhaps going out of our way to understand and help them. And to drive the point home, it says this, courtesy, kindness, justice, and love are the keynotes by which we may come into harmony with practically anybody. When in doubt, we can always pause saying, not my will, but thine be done. And we can often ask ourselves, am I doing to others as I would have them do to me today, right? So um, all the things that I wanted for other people, you know, I wanted other people to show me courtesy, to show me kindness, to give me justice, to show me love. They're, they're my keynotes. They're the notes I play. That's the melody. That's the rhythm of my life, you know? so. Okay, so now it's gonna talk about our evening practice. Um, and when evening comes, perhaps just before going to sleep, it says many of us draw up a balance sheet for the day. This is a good place to remember that inventory taking is not always done in red ink. It's a poor day indeed when we haven't done something right. As a matter of fact, the waking hours are usually well filled with things that are constructive. Good intentions, good thoughts, and good acts are there for us to see. Even when we've tried hard and failed, we may chalk that up as one of the greatest credits of all. Under these conditions, the pains of failure are converted into assets. Out of them, we receive the stimulation we need to go forward. Someone who knew what he was talking about once remarked that pain was the touchstone of all spiritual progress. So I think about, for me, when I read this, that we don't do this in red ink. When I think about the kind of feedback that I try to give my students, it's, you know, we call it constructive feedback. Um, and there's, you know, um, there's two types of assessments 
as, as an educator. There's formative assessments, meaning the feedback that we give as someone is learning, and that helps them know how they're supposed to correct their mistakes. Um, it's what we give them feedback as they go along, areas that they did well on, areas that they need to improve on, rather than that summative assessment, which is done at the end of the term, which is the final test, which I think is like, okay, if I'm gonna think about God, that's gonna be God's job, right? Not my job to give me summative assessment. That's God's job at the end of my life, perhaps, you know, that's when God will, will show up with me and, and go over my, my areas, right? But my day-to-day -day is my formative assessment. And, you know, and so um, at this point, you know, the understanding is that I'm still learning, right? And that my feedback, my, my inventory should help me inform myself on the following day. So I want to look at it to help me, you know, for me, I look at my inventory, I do it at night and I finish it in the morning. And when I finish it in the morning, I add my gratitudes because we're told here to look for the areas of good, right? It's not to tear me down. I'm a child of God. I'm not a piece of garbage. So there's got to be something worthwhile that I did during the day and I'm to look for it. And then I'm to look for the things where I did not do so well. And I look at it in the morning and then that helps me set my prayers and my meditation. I ask God to help me correct those errors, to help me, right? I put it in meditation. Um, you know, I, I think like, is this uncomfortable? to look at my areas of weakness and look how I'm gonna to have to improve. Yeah, sometimes it's uncomfortable, but you know, I was told too that nothing much grows in a comfort zone. That growth happens when you're outgrowing something, when there's the pressure, when there's a little bit of that discomfort, that I know that I'm outgrowing something because I can feel constricted by it. And it's time for me to move on and grow some more. But things don't grow when they're being torn apart either. When they're being ripped to shreds, they're not growing either. They're merely trying to survive. And so we're, we're not supposed to do that with ourselves as well. Page 95 says, learning daily to spot, admit, and correct these flaws is the essence of character building and good living. An honest regret for harm's done a genuine gratitude for blessings received and a willingness to try for better things tomorrow will be the permanent assets we shall seek. Having so considered our day, right? So we're considering our day, not omitting to take due note of things well done and having searched our hearts with neither fear nor favor, we can truly thank God for the blessings we have received and sleep in good conscience. Um, and isn't that a great way to live that we can put our heads down on the pillow and sleep like a baby. And um, with that, I will pass. <laughs>